God of truth. We're told in Numbers 23.19 that God is not man that he should lie. God is not man that he should lie. Every truth, therefore, just as we might look at the beauty of creation and say, all beauty uh, is a fraction or a refraction of the beauty of God, the creator. We can look at the realm of truth as well and say, every truth spoken is a reflection, refraction, or fragment of God who is truth. Every truth spoken reveals something about God. But that means that every lie coming from our mouth is an attack against his essential, personal, revealing nature. That is to say that every lie is a refraction of Satan's dark light against the bright light of God's truth. That's why Jesus, in his, in his cutting way, he's speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're in an argument, and he goes, man, you sound like your dad in the way you argue. And they think, he's, he's never debated my dad about the, the, the intricate the, uh, uh, minutiae of the, of the Talmudic law. He doesn't know my dad. He goes, yeah, you, you sound just like your dad, Satan. Yeah. You ever spoken to somebody, maybe you, you call up your husband or your brother and your dad picks up or their dad picks up and, and you have to wait for it. Is this, what, is this him? Who am I talking to? Because their voices are so similar. That's what Jesus said. He's talking to the religious leaders of the day. He goes, man, you, you sound exactly like Lucifer. It's crazy. You and your dad, you're just alike. That's what he was saying. He meant that, well, well, I'll just read his words. In John 8, he says, the devil does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, if the devil was to tell the truth, it would be dishonest. Because it's inconsistent with his own nature. Like you would hear him say something true and you'd go, that doesn't suit you. he's never being more honest than when he lies because that's just who he is. And so so many of us, in fact, all of us by nature fall into the same category, a child of the father of lies. Our lying is just second nature. No, not even second nature. It is literally our first nature. We are just like our father, the devil, because when he speaks, he's just being honest about who he is. When he lies, he's just revealing who he is like us liars. We love to twist the truth and words are nothing but darts that we can throw at whatever target, whatever person we want to accomplish our ends. God, first of all, this law reveals to us, is truth. But secondly, we can say he reveals truth. God is a revealing God. He hasn't left us in the darkness. He's not some deistic divine that allows us to grope around in the dark. Have you ever heard maybe an atheist or, or a Buddhist or a spiritualist sort of trying to, trying to remind you that you're arrogant for thinking you know things about God? Now use the analogy, the ancient analogy of, of, of four blind men and they all walk up to an elephant and one of them grasps his legs and says, this, this being is like a tree, hard and fast. And another grabs his tail and says, no, it's like a snake, a, a, a thin and, and hairy at the end. And, and one says, it grabs the trunk and says, no, it's like, a, it's like a, an octopus's tentacle swinging with power. And another grabs his ear and says, no, 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 it's, it's, it's soft and wavy like a large leaf. 
That's religion. One's a Buddhist, one's an Islamic, one's a Christian, one's a, uh, one, one's a pagan. And they're all seeing a fraction of God and speaking truly but incompletely. So how dare you, Christian, say that you know all about God when, when all you have is one part of the body. And the great, the great contradiction or, or failure of that analogy is that even if in this analogy God is the elephant, the elephant can speak. And tell us exactly what he's like. Yes, by nature, we're blind to who God is, but he is a revealing God. He, he spans the infinite chasm between his own dwelling and our darkness, and he tells us what he is like. And when he does that, he always speaks truth. That is why Hebrews 6 verse 18 tells us that it is impossible for God to lie. Can't God do anything? No. No, he can't lie. That's against his nature. He can, it is not a matter of a limit of his own power to be able to lie. It's because he is full of perfection and therefore can never lie. John 17 verse 17 therefore says, Your word is truth. That's Jesus speaking to the Father. Your word is truth. Not just true. It doesn't just align with reality. It is truth. It defines what is real. God's revelation is a revelation of himself. Since God cannot contradict his own nature, neither could his revelation contradict truth, which is his nature. Therefore, that is the, the theological, epistemological foundation to the fact that God always speaks the truth. If he was wrong regarding any topic then he would be lying about that topic, therefore contradicting his own nature, which cannot lie. Therefore, in the Bible, this is, this is the hope that we have. You open up the Bible to any single topic, whether it's talking about the universe, it's science, po politics, human nature, or anything else, any single thing in the word. Though all the world and all of their experts say it's not true, we say it is literally impossible for this world to remain intact with its very very intimate uh, a fabric of reality if God is wrong about this. The Bible cannot lie because God cannot lie. This is the foundation of God's word. <clears throat> Therefore, we tell the truth, which means the, the essence of this command is, is that we speak the truth in goodwill. That as we consider the two tables of the law, the first four sort of talk about God, the last six sort of talk about our love to neighbor. We, in our truth, uh, in our embodying the Lord towards God, we must have humility. Towards our neighbors, we must have benevolence. We want to do them well. This applies to our truth speaking. Towards God, we must be humble. Towards others, we must be benevolent. That is doing good and loving. The opposite of this is pride and malice. If instead of loving God in humility, I love myself in pride, and instead of loving my neighbor in benevolence, I, I do them harm in malice, we have pride and malice, the two main ways to disobey all of God's laws, especially in the area of speaking. And this is what J.I. Packer, in his explanation of this commandment, says this really is often the two foundational motivations to breaking this commandment. Why do we lie? Why do we exaggerate? Why do we speak maliciously against our neighbor? It is usually always able to be boiled down to some degree, either of pride, I'm trying to exalt myself, make myself sound better than the truth would allow me to be, 
or I'm trying to tear down my neighbor in malice. Pride and malice. Pride and self-exaltation through non-truth and the tearing down of others through non-truth. Pride, malice, lying is the triune definition of Satan. So of course it is whenever we lie to exalt ourselves, to tear down others in hatred, and we use non-truth to do it. We are speaking out of, with, the, with the vocal cords of the devil himself. Jesus is right to call us, by nature, sons of, the father, of our father, the devil. Can you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah receives a, a call, a sort of a, an additional secondary call to the ministry. He, he's ministering as a preacher and an eloquent, poetic, amazing preacher and a prophet against the sins of the people in his day, against, against Israel and against Judah and against the, the, the wickedness of the day. And God gives him a vision of glory that defines his ministry from this moment onwards. Verse 1 in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The setting of this vision is in the years, is in the, the year of King Uzziah's death. It's always a, a, a tremendous trauma to a nation when its monarch dies. You and I have, have lived through what the last generation missed, we could say, which is the death of a monarch. The, 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 the great Queen Elizabeth II perished in, in our own lifetime. And we know something of this handover. The, 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 there's, there's the death and the mourning, then the funeral, then the, then the waiting, and then the inauguration and, and glorious pompous ceremony of the next monarch coming in. And, and in Isaiah's day, there was, there was wickedness, there was evil kings, there was, there, there was corruption in every level of society. And so God promised that the, the enemies of God would come and, and bring his judgment, be his, his hammer of punishment against his own covenant people, Israel. But, but Uzziah had, a, had an amazing, amazing reign. 
It, it ended badly. He died as a, a shameful leper, but he had a, had a fairly good reign of extending the border, and then he died. He died shamefully. And here's Isaiah in this day that God gives him then a vision, not of an earthly king, not of a, a human king, but of Jesus Christ the Messiah. He foresaw, Jesus says this in John 12, Isaiah foresaw my day. He saw me and spoke of me in this prophecy. Isaiah is, in, is taken not to the earthly temple, not to the earthly throne room, but to the heavenly temple which Moses saw and then constructed the tabernacle as a copy of, Hebrews tells us. He went to the real temple. He went to the heavenly throne room and saw God sitting on his temple, surrounded by angels. And he's so glorious. He's so pompous. He's so royal that it says the edge of his, of his robe, just the train of his robe, is filling the whole temple. There's smoke everywhere, limiting visibility. And yet, Isaiah is able to see. God is on the throne. It is high and lifted up. We're not told whether this is atop hundreds of stairs or whether he floats above in his throne. We don't know, but he is high and lifted up. And then we see the angels. And first thing you see is their posture. They fly with two of their wings. They hide their face. Even the holy angels, the seraphim, whose job it is. They were literally designed by God to be in his presence and sing his praises. That's the job of a seraphim. And even they, in God's presence, have to shield their face. It's not even sin that makes them unable to be in his presence because they're not sinful. They're just not God. Nothing, even the things designed to be in God's presence, can put up with God's holy presence. And, and they cover their feet, which seems to be a sign of humility. Uh, feet could be legs. They're, they're being modest and covering themselves in God's presence. And, and then they fly. And they too are lifted up. And here's what they call out. They call out the absolute, infinite, superlative holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. If you've read R.C. Sproul's great book, Timeless Classic, you need to grab one, The Holiness of God. He, he underlines and explains this so well. That, that in the Hebrew, you can't take up the ink and, and underline things. You can't Control I B U on a on, on a PC or command I B U in case there's any confusion for the snobby Mac users, of which I am one. There's no way to put italics, underline, and bold in the Hebrew. You, you, you can't just uh, 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 highlight it in red, teachers. The, the way that you emphasize something in the Hebrew sort of language is by repetition. Jesus used it when he says, truly, truly, I tell you. Well, he said it twice. Do you think he means it? Often the, the repetition of a word would mean this is emphatic and more powerful than if I just yelled it. And yet at this point, uh, 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 the, the word holy is taken to superlatives, to, to a, to a three-tiered level. It is as if it's been said, the angels are saying, God is holy. God is holier than holy. God is the holiest that holy could ever be. He is thrice Holy. This is the greatest degree of superlative language that Hebrew can pile up. God is ultimately, essentially, infinitely holy. Now, remember, we were made in this God's image. This God is the God who not only created us, but made us to reflect him. 
It is this God in his infinite holiness and perfection that we are meant to reflect with every word that comes up out of our heart and through our sinful lips. Thomas Watson says, there's two natural guards to the tongue. Calcium-fortified teeth and muscle-controlled lips. And yet this is a third one, the law of God, which stands as a blade to judge the tongue. And yet, James says, no one can control it. This thing comes into the heart. Uh, he says that the, the, the tongue is, is set on fire by hell and then sets ablaze the whole course of life. Our tongues, our lips, our mouths are a corrupted, evil reflection of what they're meant to be in the presence of this God. Now, look at, look at how this struck Isaiah. As he's, he's standing there and the, the foundations of even the heavenly temple are shaking. The, the throne is above him and he can see it through the smoke and he can hear the intense calling of the angels and the worship to God most high. And he is in traumatic distress. He calls out in verse 5, Woe is me! At this point, the prophet is suicidal. In the earlier chapters, 1 through 5, we see him calling woe upon the degenerate, woe upon the unjust, woe upon those who twist God's words and his covenant for, for their own gain. Woe upon you. And what does he mean? May God's enemies come and destroy you. May your blood be shed, your children left fatherless, your goods plundered. May your life be squished to the dust from whence you came. And may your name be forgotten. This earth with all of its hell, is far too good for you. Woe on you. And here's Isaiah, now seeing God, and he says, woe upon me. Destroy me. I deserve judgment. I deserve destruction. I deserve the, the death and all that comes thereafter. He calls out his own prophetic woe because he is seeing, God. that's his reasoning. He says, for my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. This is the appropriate response, seeing God face to face. Woe upon me. He, some versions will say, I am lost, like the ESV. Some will say, I am undone. My fabric is pulling apart at the very seams. I cannot stand before the presence of God, he says. And he says that the real reason, the point of conviction for him is his lips. Woe upon me. For I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah's main job, his, his, his precise calling, his amazing skill and gift, and this is historically attested to, that he was one of the most golden-mouthed preachers that, that Israel had ever seen. He was an amazing, eloquent, a, a master of prose and poetry. He was a master preacher. And yet is it... It is at precisely the point of his greatest skill and his most masterful gifting that he is most minutely aware of how far he has fallen short of what this God demands of the tongue and the lips. He says, I've never spoken a word that truly encapsulates this. And my mouth is not just insufficient, but unclean. And I dwell among the people of unclean lips, he says. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Today we hear... Hey, come on, everybody does it. Like if I told you, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, I sat down with you and said, God, look, he said this, you're going to hell because if at even one point in your life you uttered 
an untruth or a half-truth. I've said this to people, evangelizing on the street. If you can't get them to agree that they're sinners on any other level, you can at least get them to acknowledge that they're a liar. And if they say they have never lied, then you tell them there's another one. And I've never had anyone say anything other than, ah, you got me, I was lying. They'll admit it. But the usual response then is, but this is my nature. Like, like everybody does it. Yeah, they're your two problems. Yes, you are naturally sinful. Thank you for admitting it. And you dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, what that doesn't do is excuse you. To Isaiah, he doesn't say, everybody does it, Lord. You know, I'm, I'm on par. I'm above average. He says, I am of unclean lips. And every day I put up with falsehoods. I listen. I entertain them. I, I put up with them. I'm okay with it. How, how far my, my judgment and my par and the plumb line has fallen from God's standard because I'm, I'm being discipled by my generation. That's what he's admitting. I've been far too allowant and, and, and tolerant of that which goes on around. I'm far too comfortable and desensitized to the people I am around, this evil and corrupt generation filled with injustice. The ninth commandment in their day lay broken in the street. You read the commentators and, and the Puritans and the confessions on, on, on this, uh, the, the, this commandment, the ninth commandment. You see, it's, it's so much more than just don't lie. In fact, it's elevated and made specific in the ninth commandment, but not so as to take away from every other way of breaking the truth, but, but to make it so more important. So in other words, the way that it specifically is said in the ninth commandment is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the language of that in the Hebrew is really in the language of the courtroom. So, so perjury or, or, or falsifying account. You, you come into the courtroom and, and you bear witness and say, I saw him. He, he did this against this person. He, he stole. He, he cursed the king like, like, like evil Queen Jezebel for her husband Ahab. goes and he's, he's crying on his bed and whimpering in the fetal position. And this demonic feminist Jezebel comes up to him and says, what's wrong, my love? And he goes, oh, Nahoth won't give me his field and I want it. And so she says, it's okay, my darling, mommy, I mean, your wife will sort this out. And so Satan, in the form of Jezebel, goes and she throws a party for, 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 for this man. And, and at this great party, she puts two worthless men next to him in the feast. And at a synchronized time, they stand up, bear witness, for on the account of two or three witnesses shall people be put to death. And they stand up and say, we heard him say it. He cursed God and cursed the king. And so they take him, drag him to the street, and so they think quite justly, vindicate God's holiness, vindicate God's law, and stone this man to death. Jezebel struts on home. Oh, darling, the field is available. The misuse of justice, of truth, in the court of justice is not unheard of. It is so common. We, we see it all over the, the, the Bible. It's how Stephen the martyr died. It's how Jesus was, was falsely accused and taken to the cross. It, it's common. But, 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 but what we see is that God is saying truth is so important. Let's, let's take it to the most important element. That if a generation or a society gives up on telling the truth, justice is impossible. And when that is the case, society is literally on its deathbed. 
despite their technology. Uh, like, like today, we might not necessarily rely so heavily on eyewitnesses because you know what we have? We have cameras. We have fingerprint technology. We have DNA testing. We, we have all of these things. We have voice recordings. We, we have sensors. We have all that. Are we any closer at being a just society? Still, the truth remains that, that when a people cannot trust each other, to speak the truth, uh, foremost in the area of the court of law, that society is damned. It cannot last unless a great revival sweeps through them and cleanses their lips. In the Old, in the Old Testament, the law was that if you were a witness in court against somebody and you were found to be lying, you would be punished with the punishment you were trying to get the other person accused with. If you were trying to get them killed by the court, you would be killed if found lying. If you're trying to get their hand chopped off uh, through your lies and your court, your hand will be chopped off. In fact, it was another level of uh, unpleasantness applied to this, that even if you're telling the truth and the court and the system went through the whole process and the person was condemned and they were about to be put to death, the first accuser had to throw the first stone at the person's head to begin their, 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 their capital punishment. So, so emphatic was God that people would not be careless with, with justice, which relies on honesty, that it was made into the ninth commandment, one of the, one of the top ten, and it was again reiterated with all of these case laws around it. But it's not just the court system. It's not as if we can say, well, lying, you know, I'm not lying in court, never put my hand on a Bible, never even been called into jury duty. It's fine. I can't break this law. No, no what God is saying, and we remember the paradigmatic or categorical reality of God's law is that when it speaks to one thing, it means everything that leads to it. When he speaks to don't murder, he means, and don't hate people in your heart. Don't, don't even wish them dead. So when he says, when you lie, justice will be impossible and your whole society will crumble at the seams, then you realize that when I, I was just telling a white lighter uh, about somebody else around the cooler at work, it seems so benign. No, you were teeming with the devil, fighting against God and contributing to the downfall of your entire generation. We were unpicking one thread at a time, the seams which hold the world together. And we will fall into barbarism, lying. Yes, in court, but every other lie is a contribution and a, a, to the sin against God. Self-exaltation where we, we embellish a story or we make one up, where we, we lie on our resume. We've all, we've all done some level of lying against God. Uh, lying against other people, rather, or destructive malice, where you lie by, by, by exaggerating somebody's evils so that the people that you can tell seem pretty impressed with this person will now think of them in a, in a damaged way. Sometimes it is lying about a person or slandering them, telling, telling even some things that are true or half-true about them to a whole lot of people that was not yours to tell. This is destructive malice and falsehood. Or like the devil, when we twist truth, give a half honesty. We conveniently withhold some of the details. These are all ways of lying. The devil needs no sons. He cannot reproduce because he does so every time our words beget his children into the world through lies. James therefore says, we set the world on fire by our tongue, which is lit from hell. Or a third way that we can break this, not just lying in court or 
lying against neighbors, but lying in conversation. And thirdly, the way that we break this is when we listen to lies. Uh, a lie cannot be spoken. It's not a lie if, you're, if it's not in any, in any essential or, 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 or significant way of defining. It's not a lie if it's not spoken to somebody. Therefore, by listening to a slander, to gossip, I know it's interesting. The proverb says that, that gossip is like a morsel. It's so tasty. And it goes down into the soul and corrupts you. So also, when we listen to gossip, we are, we are aiding gossip. We are, we are giving gossip something that it did not have without our ears, which is a hearing. We're allowing it. We are promoting it. When we pass it on, Thomas Watson says this, Some are loath to steal and take away your neighbor's goods. We covered that last commandment. Conscience would fly in their face, of course, but better it is to take away their corn out of their field and their coin from their purse and their wares from their shop than to take away a good name. This is the sin for which no reparation can be made. A blot in a man's name allowed through gossip, kindly shared, is, be, is like a, a blot of ink on white paper which can never be got out so hard you may rub. There's an old Jewish proverb of a, of a man who was respected in his town and over decades of his, his counseling, he was respected as this truthful man and a, and a stranger comes into town uh, and, 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 and through his, his lies. He just made things up and told lies against this man and, and everybody turned against him and thought of him as a corrupt pervert and a liar. And then the man apologized. He came to the Jewish elder and he says, I'm, I was jealous. I'm so, what can I do to make this better? And the man said, you, you can go, you know, grab your feathered pillow, throw the feathers to the wind for all I care. So the man went and did it. He, that's pretty petty, pretty small, but not much of a price to pay. And he threw out all of the feathers and he saw the man the next day and he goes, hey, I, I did what you told me. Was there anything else? And he goes, yes. Go and pick up every last feather. Well, that's impossible. They, they were lost to the wind. And so it is with slander. Once you've poisoned the well, once you've muddied the reputation, you've blotted that white reputation, and it is almost, in fact, practically impossible to get out. There will always be a question of the person's character that, that sits at the back of people's minds. It is a devilish thing to play. The Heidelberg Catechism, in question 112, asks this, well, what is aimed at in this ninth commandment? And it, it says this, that I... Never give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words, nor gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly without a fair hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. For these are the very devices the devil uses, and they will call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. This is a commandment. So think again of Isaiah's day. He's standing there before God, hearing his holy, holy, holy name exalted. And he's just thinking how many times he's heard a slander and tolerated it. How many times he's been burning within to prophetically speak against somebody's sin and he let it go because they, they were his neighbor. 
how many times he had spoken something that was false for his own promotion because though a prophet, he was just a mere human. The Old Testament speaks of the guilt of all the things that God hates. Proverbs 6 tells us he abhors a false witness who breathes out lies. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Revelation 22.15, speaking of the, the eternal judgment that is to come. Outside of the kingdom, outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. These are the very devices the devil uses, the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. That makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? It will call down on me God's intense wrath. The Lord abhors these lying lips which are an abomination, and here he is in all of his splendor right in front of Isaiah. Of course he screams out, Woe is me! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, the King. Think of us. Think of our day. Think of your day. Think of your circles, your friends, your co-workers, your family. What sort of speech is tolerated around the dinner table or on the bed late at night as you're going off to sleep with the spouse or, or between brothers in the backyard or, or in the staff room while somebody's outside of the room or, or when your boss calls on you in what ways we fudge the truth. Think of your own lips. If you were to be standing at Mount Sinai and hearing the God of hosts say this, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or if you were to be there with Isaiah, looking up at Jesus, it was the same. The voice at Sinai, the king on the throne, was all Jesus. And you hear him, see him, and you think of your own sin. These golden, pure lips of the angels proclaiming God's immeasurable holiness. And then you think of your own lips, how you've lied, told false stories to cover your tracks, misinformed the parents so that you can allow yourself to sin later. You've tolerated or passed on gossip, abused and insulted somebody face-to-face with your words, exaggerated facts for your own pathetic glory, spoken to tear down somebody else's reputation, allowed your lips to be used by the fire of hell to burn against the God of truth. What can be done? For somebody who is so undone before God, what could be done? Let's look again at Isaiah 6. Look what happens. In verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that even he had taken with tongs. It's it's pretty darn hot when an angel, whose literal translation of his name is fiery one, the seraphim, he's made of fire and this coal is too hot. He has to use tongs. This heat of this fire, of this coal, is speaking of the the purifying Holy Spirit. This is constant throughout the Old Testament. This is true even in the New Testament. That the, The image of fire is God's holy, purifying presence, His Holy Spirit. But where did the coal come from? It came from the altar. And on the altar is where the atonement for sin is made. The the Old Testament priests would would make a sacrifice of an animal and shed the blood so that sin could be atoned for. 
and here is the, the seraphim bringing the, the fiery, maybe blood-soaked coal and bringing it over to Isaiah. And verse 7 says, he touched my mouth. Have you ever burned your tongue? It remains furry for a week. You, you, you bite down on a, on a spoon that was far too hot. I, I was one time as a child, I was, we were doing marshmallows around the fire and, 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 and just as I went to, to bite my, my marshmallow off of my stick, somebody with more than two brain cells said, maybe use your hands, smart enough. And so I, I took it off and as I did, there was a, a hot ember, this coal that had stuck to my marshmallow. I couldn't see it. I didn't take time to look. I was hungry. I, and so I grabbed it and it seared my skin and gave me this burn for weeks. And I just thought, what if I had bit down on that? And, and the searing, the, the smell would have been one thing. The, the, the searing sound, the, the pain that, that, that feels like a hot blade stabbing through you when something hot touches you. But we're not told that Isaiah notices any of that as this white hot coal is pressed against his lips. The, the most sensitive, one of the most sensitive parts of the human body is it touches his lips. All we are told is what he hears the angels say. For that was more overpowering than whatever pain was being translated to him in his vision. And the promise was this. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your, that, that would scream louder to you and impact you harder if we were standing in the presence of God than any coal touching the most sensitive parts of your body. Guilt is taken away and sin is atoned for. Whatever could do such a thing for a vile, lie-speaking, corrupted, unclean lip. So what could do that? Now, now here's the reminder. Isaiah is not in the temple on earth. He's not in the throne room of earth. Two separate rooms, remember? He's not there. He's in the perfect one in which an animal has never been carried whose altar upon which has never had a slayed animal. There has never been animal blood shed in that altar. What is it which is atoning for and cleansing and taking away the guilt of his sin? It is none other than the white, hot, fiery blood of the one who sat on the throne, the voice at Sinai, the king on the throne, the blood on the altar is all Jesus. It is Jesus' blood which soaked this coal, which was able to speak to one, penitent, repentant, confessional, reliant on God's grace, trusting in him. He granted to him the one thing which can wash away my sin, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Hebrews 9 says, Christ has entered not into the holy places made by men, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave is all that we needed to be cleansed. Hebrews 9 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, 
but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christian, if you have called on the name of Jesus, if you have trusted in his righteous life, perfect death in your place, and his glorious triumphant resurrection, if you have trusted in him, then his white hot blood sears away, cleanses away, burns away all of your sin, whether it be the sin of the lips, the sin of the heart, the hands, or all other manner of evils. You are cleansed and burned pure. He, he provides himself the thing which he demanded, purity, forgiveness, cleanliness. But if you are not in Jesus, if you are not trusting in Jesus, then the fearful, harrowing words of Jesus will ring over you to your judgment. For he said in his earthly life, every idle word, every little thing that has ever been spoken, even in the darkest of places, will be shouted out from the mountaintops. Your words will stand against you as judgment. You will receive from this law of this Lord of Mount Sinai, this Lord of Isaiah's vision, Jesus the resurrected God. He will judge you for every word ever spoken, for every sin ever committed, lest you trust in him today and your sin will be atoned for and your guilt will be taken away. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people of unclean lips and every single one of us knows ourselves to be unclean in our speech, imperfect in our language, the lovers of lies, the, the abomination that your soul hates, which is those who, who race to speak morsels of gossip. We are those by nature that you by nature abhor. But we thank you, Lord God, for the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to do what we could not do, that he bled and that he died and that he provided in heaven an altar upon which white hot coals doused with the blood of Christ can cleanse us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death and how insufficient our thanks will always be. But God, now filled with your spirit, cleansed by regeneration, living in the righteous status of sons of God, we still fail. We listen to gossip because we're too cowardly to put it down. We, we share morsels of slander. We, we tolerate things which might bring down our neighbor so that we can be exalted. We, we lie for our own good. We lie to others' harm. We, we are still imperfect. And we pray that you would make us a people zealous for good works and words. That you would make us an honest people, a confessing of our sins People, a, a, a righteous people because we love Jesus. We seek to be like Jesus and obey Jesus. Would you do this in our midst for only your spirit can hold back the floodgates of the fires of hell coming from our mouth. We ask these things, Lord God, because you are able and you are willing to do so. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.